Well, good morning. Hi. My name is Eric. For those of you who don't know me, I'm the pastoral intern here at Bethel Christian Fellowship. And I've been here for about two months now, and it's already starting to get cold. And uh, <laughs> I, uh, I grew up in East Africa, Tanzania. And so uh, cold weather is not the greatest thing to me. But, you know, it, you know, I realized something. Minnesota nice is a real thing, though. Like, after I moved here, I'd heard about it, you know, growing up. You know, I listen to Garrison Keillor on the radio and stuff, but uh, Minnesota nice, it's a real thing. I mean, I was, I was driving in the car the other day with my, my fiance's mom, and it, it's funny, like, someone is running a stop sign in front of her, okay, running a stop sign. Now, I lived in New York for about seven years total, and this person's running a stop sign. If you're in New York, and someone is in front of you running a stop sign, you're going to have a few choice words for them. You're going to be like, more... You moron, what's wrong with you? Get out of the way. What are you doing? All right? What are you doing? But in Minnesota, <laughs> my, my fiance, Bethany's mom is like, okay, sweetheart, where are you going? What are you doing here? And I'm just like, <laughs> the guy's running a stop sign, and you're still nice to him. What's up with that? Anyway, Pastor Jim is gone this week, and so that means that I get to preach. I'm excited about this. We're continuing this series called A Rock, uh, which means to lay a foundation or to set an order. We're talking about the foundational principles that this church is based on, built around. Um, And we've we've gone through four of them so far. Uh, Why don't we just say them together, just to get us caught up to where we are. Uh, We won't read the whole thing, just the bold part up to the colon. We will stand for truth. We will establish our unity and our Christ-centered vision. We will depend on God in prayer. We will make disciples. And now... We will value every member as a minister. We are called to do our part that the whole work will be done. We will seek to discover what our gifts are so that our primary ministry will reflect our giftedness. Yahoo! I'm excited because, okay, first of all, it's Mission Sunday. This is a good week to have this, this series, right? Now, apart from tithing, though, giving our time is not always the most popular thing to talk about, right? You notice that both Jim and Sam skipped out of town this week and left this one to me. Uh, so, because this is our idea of ministry, right? Oh, no, do I have to be a pastor? Oh, no, do I have to teach? Oh, no, do I have to lead worship? Oh, no, am I going to be sent to Africa and live in a hut as a missionary? Please. Terrible stuff. Or my personal favorite, oh, no, are they going to make me watch children? All right? (laughs) These are the things we think of when we hear every member a minister. They're going to require me to do something uncomfortable. They're going to require me to volunteer for something. And this is kind of our idea of ministry. Now, minister is the Latin, actually it comes from the same word as the Latin word for servant, all right? So, sometimes we, 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 we over-spiritualize 
ministry, okay? Ministry is basically service, right? Um, and uh, so we're not, we, don't, we don't want you guys to teach. We just want you guys to be servants. So I don't know which is better. All right. Um, and it's a pretty clear thing in the Bible that we're asked, we're required to serve God, right? Okay. He, I mean, thank God for his grace. All right. Thank God for his grace that saved us. But there's this thing where, where there's, there's it, Paul, after his great theological talk in Romans about the grace of God, how the grace of God has saved us, rescued us, transformed us. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, therefore, based on this awesome work that Christ has done for us on our behalf, the thing that we could not do, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, in, by the mercies of God, or in other translations it says, in view of God's mercies, in view of all that God has done for us, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual act of worship, or it could also be translated, reasonable service. Okay, So it's not like some unreasonable, ridiculous thing that God is asking us to serve him. Okay, He's done so much for us. And we'll, we'll look at a little bit more of that. This passage here is a little bit jarring for us in the West, okay? I'm, I'm just going to, you know, fasten your seatbelts because this will give you a little whiplash here. Will any of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once and recline at the table? Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So also, you, oh, so also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done our duty. Hmm. Now, that's not usually, I don't, I don't think I've ever heard someone preach on this passage, because it's really not that popular, you know. We are unworthy servants, okay. We've only done what is our duty. So, again, Jesus kind of highlighting the fact that you know, God is so worthy of everything that we can possibly give him, okay? We should never feel like we, we've one-upped God, and now he owes us for something that we did for him, right? It's never, it's never a feeling like, oh, God, you know, on Saturday, you know, while all the parents were in their parenting class, I was in there watching the kids. Oh, you know, you owe me, you know, throw me a bone here, right? <laughs> I've done something good for you. You know, this is just, he is so worthy of everything that we are that our attitude should be, you know, whenever something comes up, we should be like, hey, I'm your unworthy servant. I will do anything you ask me to do. It's only by your grace that I'm even here. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14 and 15. This is one of my, fa this is one of my favorite passages. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, Therefore, all have died, and he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. That's so powerful. That's so powerful. Jesus Christ came to set us free from sin and death, but also to set you free from yourself. You know? Um, you're, he came to set us free from the tyranny of self. Because when you're living for yourself, let me tell you something, you can never actually love someone. 
So everyone will be either a vehicle to help you get what you want or an obstacle to keep you from getting what you want. Okay? So you can't actually love when you're ruled by the tyranny of self. So Jesus Christ came so that we would no longer live to serve ourself, but to serve him. And so often, when we read these passages and we think, offer your, offer your body up as a living sacrifice, serve God, live for Christ, what, are, what do we often think of? Many times what comes to my mind is, you know, temperance or self-control. You know, offering my body up as a living sacrifice to God means keeping myself from all of these sins. And, and um, oftentimes in church, that's even the message that we are declaring, right? And it, I'm, I know that many of us would hold up as the highest virtue, love, right? Many of us would say love is probably the highest virtue. But if you look at the way we live our lives and the way we even live spiritually, realistically, we value self-control as probably one of the highest virtues, Right? And we, we would see, you know, if you can control your passions, if you can control your desires, then you are offering yourself a, as a living sacrifice. And it's always this, it's very much an ethereal type of thing. God deserves our service, and it's only by his grace that we are privileged to work with him. All right? Can we agree on that? Yeah. He, God is a pretty worthy guy. All right? <laughs> but what does ministry to God look like? Okay. Ministry, service, I'm going to use those words interchangeably because we looked at the Latin and they're basically the same thing. All right. So what does ministry to God look like? Now, in the Old Testament, in the Old Testament, ministry to God was very much, um, it was very much based in the tabernacle or the temple, right? That was the center of ministering or or worshiping, or serving God. And there was a group of people called the Levites. And specific ones within the, Le within the tribe of the Levites were the priests. And they were called to minister to God. Okay? They would offer sacrifices. And within the tabernacle and the temple, there was what was called the Holy of Holies. It was this perfect, it was this perfect cube within the temple or within the tabernacle. Okay? This perfect cube. And in there... That was considered the, that was the place where the most holy ministry took place. On the Day of Atonement, once a year, the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies and offer the sacrifice of atonement for the sins of the people so that they could have a right relationship with God. And this was ministry in the Old Testament. And often, we still have kind of an Old Testament mindset when it comes to ministry, right? We come into church on Sunday, we stand, we raise our hands, we sing a few songs, and that is ministry to God. And, and I'm not saying that worship and all of those things are wrong. No, they have a great place, and it builds, it builds our faith, it builds our relationship with God, and it's pleasing to Him. But at Jesus' death, the veil was torn right? The veil to, to, into the Holy of Holies was torn open. Now, this would have been huh, just a shocking thing to the Jews, right? Because, you know, most people would never even get a chance to look inside the Holy of Holies, okay? You know, like 0.0001% of the population in Israel got a chance to look inside of there. 
And all of a sudden, this veil is torn open, ripped open at the death of Jesus Christ. And oftentimes we see that and we interpret it as, well, separation was removed. We all have access now into the Holy of Holies. And that is so true, and that is such an awesome part of Christianity, that we can go boldly before the throne of God and make our requests enter into his very presence. But it's more than that. It's more than just that. Because not only that, but the focal point of ministry and worship to God was also moved. You see, up until this point, the focal point of everything that the Jews did was, it was based around this holy of holies. All the, all the sacrifices, everything, took place around the holy of holies. And the most sacred sacrifice was inside of the holy of holies. But all of a sudden, this veil is rent. It's ripped open. And it's kind of like God was saying, okay, this has now served its purpose. It's finished. The atonement has taken place once and for all. No longer is the focal point or the center of worship this holy of holies. Let's look at Matthew chapter 25. In Matthew chapter 25, verse 31, I don't know if I'll read the whole thing. Ah, I will. <laughs> Jesus here is talking about the final judgment. He's talking about when he comes back, okay? And he's giving people here a picture of what it means to minister to God, to serve God. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me. You cursed into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they also answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry, or thirsty, or a stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison, and did not minister to you. Then he will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Jesus here is challenging man's idea of what service to God looked like. Because you see, for thousands of years, since the beginning of time, 
man has always figured, well, if I'm going to give, if I'm going to minister or serve God, I may as well minister or serve him directly, right? Pagan religions, even the Jewish religion, if you wanted to give a gift to God, what would you do? Go to the temple, you bring in your offering, you know, maybe it's a a bird, an animal, some money, a small child, whatever it is, okay? (laughs) You bring it to God and you offer it to God or your gods. And this was considered ministering to God, meeting God's needs, if we could say that, all right? But Jesus here is saying, no, 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 no. No longer is it based in the temple, okay? Ministering to me means ministering to someone in need. This, you know, we've said this in church so many times that it kind of, it's kind of lost its meaning, you know? Whatever you do to the least of these, you've done for me. It's kind of lost its meaning, but... Think about this for a moment. Think about how drastically different this was for everyone listening to what Jesus was saying. They're thinking ministry. Okay, I'll go to the temple. I'll leave a sacrifice. I've done my duty. I've ministered to God. Jesus is saying, no, no, no. If you see someone who's sick or hurting and you don't minister to them, you haven't ministered to me. If you... (laughs) see someone standing on a street corner and you don't minister to them, you haven't ministered to me. You know, how many of us, you know, if we found out that Jesus was sick in the hospital, wouldn't go and visit him? Or how many of us, if we saw Jesus on the side of the road with a flat tire, wouldn't pull over, stop, you know, earn a couple extra brownie points and help him change his tire, right? How many of us would not do that? You know, you see him sitting on the side of the robe with his long blonde hair and his robe on, and you're like, oh, man, I'm going to go pull over there and help Jesus out, right? Jesus didn't have blonde hair. Anyway, (laughs) but (laughs) how many of us, you know, how many of us would drive by Jesus if we saw Jesus sitting on a street corner in need of food? This is a radical, radical, radical concept, and it challenged to the very core how men viewed serving God. How we view serving God. It's completely radical, completely foreign to everything that they knew. There's a, there was a man named Pacomius in the early Christian church. The early Christians, they got this. All right? They understood this. In fact, this man, Pacomius, he was not a Christian. But he was living in northern Egypt, a place called Thebes, during the time of the Roman Empire. And he and all the young men in this city were kind of um, drafted into the Roman army. And in the Roman army, you know, you'd basically, they, they, would, they could go in, they could press gang everybody in the town and say, you're all going to be in the Roman army. Well, since they knew that desertion would probably be pretty high if they just relied on people to show up, they would grab everybody, stick them all in prison until they kind of cooled off. Then they'd stick them in a bunch of wagons, prison wagons, cart them off to a faraway place so they would have a hard time getting home. Then they'd train them, and then you'd serve in the army for a couple of years, and then you'd be free to go home. So, it's a great system. But anyway, so Pacomius and his 
fellow future soldiers are in prison in Egypt. And it's, you know, prisons today are pretty nice. But back in those days, prison wasn't a great place to be. And while they're in prison, a famine breaks out in the land. And, you know, the people outside of prison are struggling to find food. Now, how much food do you think the guys in prison are going to get? Okay, this isn't, human rights wasn't really a big thing back then, okay? So, these guys in prison, well, they're the last ones to get any type of service. So, they are starving to death in prison. And they think, all hope is gone. Who on earth is going to come and save us here in prison when they're struggling to find food out there? Well, one night, these people show up at the window of the prison and they start handing bread through the prison bars to these prisoners. These prisoners are devouring it ravenously. They don't care who these people are, okay? They're just like, there's bread coming through the window, grab a piece, bite into it, all right? And, and, and night after night, these people come back, and they're bringing them food, night after night. And eventually, these prisoners start asking themselves, who are these people, and why on earth are they giving us food in here when they're struggling to find food out there. They come to find out that they're from this new cult called the Galileans. All right? They worship some guy who died and then apparently came back to life. Okay? Crazy stuff. All right? But <laughs> they're giving us bread. They're bringing us bread. And Pacomius, you can see Saint Pacomius on there. Okay? He got saved. He became a saint, whatever that involved. But anyway, he... he after his time in the Roman army, he got out of the Roman army, he sought out these Christians. Even though there was persecution going on in this church, he sought them out and he said, I need to know why you did this. And they basically told him, oh, the, the, the Christians in Thebes, you know, they did that because they believed that serving you was serving God. Serving you, ministering to your need was ministering to God. Guys, this is what won the Roman Empire to Christ. Was the, genero- the, the fact that these early Christians threw their generosity at an empire that despised them. They threw their compassion at an empire that despised them. They refused to give up on the people who had given up on them. The empire said, these Christians are nuts. In many cases, they said they don't even deserve to live. They persecuted them, killed many of them. But these Christians refused, refused to stop meeting the needs of the people within the Roman Empire. These Christians, these early Christians, they would take boats out into the river where babies were tossed because they were unwanted. And they would fish babies out of the water and take them home and raise them. Okay, old time, they didn't have abortion, so they would just, when you had a child that you didn't want, you take it out, you throw it in a ditch, done. These Christians would walk through these ditches, picking up abandoned babies, taking them in, caring for them. (laughs) When plagues struck large Roman cities at the end of the second century and beginning of the third century, The Christians remained behind in order to care for the sick and dying. When all of the pagan priests, who were usually some of the richest guys in town, when they would 
hightail it out of there, you know, because they could afford to move on to another place. But all of the poor people who couldn't afford to leave, the Christians stayed behind and ministered to these sick and dying people. And in many cases, they, got, they caught the plague and died themselves. But because of this compassion, because they believed that reaching out to people in need was reaching out to Jesus Christ, they turned the Roman Empire upside down. And Christianity became the world religion that it is today because of this, because of this movement. Because they believe that every single person can touch the heart of Jesus Christ. Every single person can minister to the need of Jesus Christ when they minister to someone in need. It was a radical, radical idea that changed the world. What changed the Roman Empire wasn't the theology of Christianity. Okay, let's face it. The theology of Christianity is pretty crazy, especially if you're a Roman and most of them didn't, believe, didn't even believe in resurrection from the dead. Okay? The theology of Christianity was pretty crazy. And even by and large, it wasn't even the miracles. You know, there are, there are cases we see miracles took place, but it was the compassion that grabbed the heart of the Romans, and they said, whatever these guys have, we need it. Because this is a completely different way of doing life. They believed that you could touch the heart of God by touching the heart by meeting the needs of those in need. All right, you might be saying, all right, well, you've, I'm sold, all right? You're so good at presenting this. I'm sold. I want to do ministry. All right, well, I'm going to give you guys just a couple of principles, all right, from the book of Judges, chapter 6, on entering in to ministry, all right? Gideon. Gideon, I love this story of the call of Gideon. It's such a, it, to me it's so comical, all right? Here we go, ready? Uh, chapter 6, I'm going to start in verse 11 of Judges. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth, under the terebinth at Ophrah, which belonged to Joash the Abiezrite, while his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress to hide from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. And Gideon said to him, Please, sir, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his wonderful deeds that our father recounted to us, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. All right? Gideon saw that there was a problem. All right? He saw things are not the way they're supposed to be. Where is God? And when you look around at our broken world, it's easy to feel just like Gideon felt, right? You look at all of the problems that we have in this world, and it's easy to go, where are you, God? How are things like this permitted to happen? How, you know, we've got human trafficking, abortion, all sorts of things. People being taken advantage of. Immigrants being taken advantage of. Injustice prevails by and large. And it, it's easy to just say, God, where are you? 
Even within church, maybe that you see an unmet need that no one else sees, all right? We can cry out, and we're just like, God, why aren't you doing something? Why aren't you taking a step? Why aren't you moving? You know, I think my generation, we are probably the most, uh, I don't know about this, but we're one of the most so socially aware, or we are such an aware generation when we talk about problems, social problems, and yet we're one of the most inactive generations, all right? I'm talking, all right, guys, listen up here, all right? You got, everyone else, you can just step aside for a second. But we, we are so aware, you know, we like the page on Facebook, we wear the wristband, we buy the T-shirt, and yet we do the least of any generation up to this point. And awareness is one thing. Awareness is so important. Don't get me wrong. I love that, you know, human people are raising awareness for human trafficking and all these other things. I love that we're getting aware of those things. Because you, you can't fix a problem until you know what the problem is. But it has to, you have to take another step past awareness, past knowing what the problem is. So <laughs> I love this here. Gideon is so upset. He's so angry. He says, God, where are you? Why aren't you doing something? Well, look at this. In verse 14, And the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do I not send you? You know, it's like, God, where are you? Why aren't you doing something? God says, I'm so glad you're passionate about this. Let's go do something about it. You know, I'm so glad this upsets you. I'm so glad these issues bother you. <laughs> Let's do something about it. Let's fix it. And Gideon, of course, says, uh, me? You know? <laughs> no, no, no. I meant, you know, you should do something. You know, <laughs> throw down hail from heaven. Smite these Midianites. Throw them in the sea. I don't care. Do something. All right? But me? <laughs> he says, and he said to him, please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. All right? I think most of us can relate to this. Even as I'm talking about ministry, you know, most of us, many of us, about, probably about 80% of us would say, ah, oh, I don't think I can. Ah, oh, talking to strangers isn't my thing. Ah, oh, I'm afraid of children. Ah, oh, you know? <laughs> We're, we, 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 we see our weaknesses, right? And God told Gideon, he says, go in this might of yours, all right? God recognized that there were gifts. Where's my little laser? There it is. I wanted to use this at some point. There were gifts and passions within Gideon that he didn't even know he had. The Bible teaches very clearly that each one of us has been given gifts, in order to build up and edify the church. And most of the time we think of, well, you know, the pastors, the professionals, we leave the ministry to them. But if you look at Ephesians chapter 4, it says that God gave the fivefold ministry in order to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. Okay? Uh, I don't want to talk too much about that because I think that's ne next week's sermon. I don't want to steal someone's thunder. Okay? But the, <laughs> the, the people who are the professionals or the equippers, the ministry isn't their job. Their job is to equip the saints 
That means you guys, all right? The Bible never uses the words, the, the term lay person, okay? It's not in there. You can't find lay person in the Bible. The only word the, the Bible uses to describe you guys is believers or saints, all right? So ministry is our job. And God has equipped you with gifts in order to do it. And look at this. Look at what God says here. Verse 16. And the Lord said to him, I will be with you, and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. I'm going to, you know, immediately when we think of ministry, oh, the first thing that comes into our, into our mind is all of our shortcomings. All the reasons why we can't do it. All the reasons why we can't step out and do this thing. And God says, don't worry about it. I got this. You know, go in this might, but you know what? <laughs> You're going to take that step, and I'm going to be stepping right with you. You're going to reach out your hand, and I'm going to put my hand over yours, and we're going to do this together. Don't worry about it. You're not doing this on your own. You're not alone in this. So, we recognize that there's a problem. Turn on the news for a few seconds. You can pretty much see that there is a problem in this world. God invited him to do something based on his gifting and passion. You know, maybe there's something that you're passionate about. I tell you, check it out. Try it out. Step into that. God might be calling you to do that. Many times he calls us based on our passions. Gideon recognized his weakness you guys are weak, and so am I. But God told them that they would do it together. You don't have to fear that you're going to fail, all right? God's in this with us. I love this quote by Mother Teresa. And Mother Teresa to me, all right, she's a little, she was a little old nun, but man, she was like my hero, all right? She died the same day as Princess Diana, so Princess Diana got a lot of the press. But Mother Teresa, man... She, oh, she lived this. She lived this. You know, she, she said, every day I minister to Jesus in disguise. You know, she went to Calcutta, India, just to minister to the people who were sick and dying, to the lepers, just so that they could have a dignified death, just so she could wash their wounds before they would die. She lived this, guys. And I love this quote by her. It's one of my favorites. If you can't feed 100 people, then just feed one. You know, it's so easy with all of the problems in the world, with all of the, the many catastrophes that we see going on around us, to throw up our hands and say, it's hopeless, I can't do anything. Right? I don't know how many millions of kids die every day from starvation. And we just throw up our hands and we say, it's hopeless. What can we do? What can I do? It's a drop in the bucket or a drop in the ocean. And Mother Teresa, I love this so much. If you can't feed 100 people, then at least feed one. Now, I would add, if you can feed 100 people, then feed 100 people. You know? But if you can't, just do what you can. Do what you can. And no, it's not convenient. You know? It's not convenient, but... You know, Jesus wasn't very convenient when he was on the earth. Just ask Mary and Joseph, all right? Jesus is not, he's not really about convenience. 
Mary and Joseph were quite inconvenienced by what Jesus did. If you can't feed 100 people, then feed one. We believe here at Bethel Christian Fellowship that you are a minister. That you have a call on your life to affect the world. And you can't know how far the impact of what you do will reach. You can't know. Some of the biggest changes that I've heard about in the lives of people came from some of the smallest actions. Compassion, my, I, had a, I worked in Utica, New York for two years, and my pastor there used to say that compassion is the, is the, the fulcrum that God uses to move mountains. Compassion. He uses it to leverage. And, and every one of us is a minister. And here as a church, all right, when we're ministering to one another, what does Pastor Jim like to say? We exist for those who are not yet here, right? We exist for those who are not yet here. You know, church, so many times church becomes like a social gathering or just a social event where we come in, you know, we get our word for the week, and then we go back out. Well, church was meant to be, it's like the corner in a boxing ring, okay? You're out there. You're in the world. You're fighting against the devil. You're fighting against his schemes, and you get beat up, right? You get beat up when you're out there. And just like a boxer who, you know, or UFC fighter. I like to watch UFC. But he just collapses in the corner, and, and his coach... And the other guy with the towel and the Vaseline who comes out and rubs all over his face and stuff. But, you know, those guys, they come in and they just, they just are rubbing his muscles down, slapping him in the face, you know, get back out there, go, go, go. You can do it. You can do it. All right? You got this. That's what church is. Right? During the week, we're supposed to be out there. We're supposed to be, you know, getting beat up, ministering to people, meeting those needs. I don't know. Maybe it's your neighbor. Your neighbor needs help. Raking the, raking the leaves in their yard. They need help shoveling their, shoveling their driveway. Maybe it's stopping on a corner and talking to the guy out there holding this cardboard sign. Whatever it is. But church isn't just a social gathering. This is our corner. This is where we get slapped up and get sent back out. Give us a little bit of water and get back out there, right? And that's what we're about. We are change agents. And I, don't, I haven't given up on America. You know, the Roman Empire was pretty sad. The Roman Empire was pretty sad. And our country is pretty sad. The world is pretty sad. It's in pretty sad shape. And yet, the Christians turned the world upside down because they believed that they could touch Jesus Christ when they helped people in need. And you, likewise, minister to God when you minister to someone in need. Look at these, I mean, look at the needs that Jesus mentioned, okay? These aren't huge things, okay? Visiting someone who's sick, all right? That takes maybe, you know, an hour out of your week, all right? <laughs> Giving someone an extra T-shirt that you probably don't even wear anymore, you know? stopping on the side of the road and handing a granola bar out to a guy who's holding a cardboard sign. These aren't like 
huge, huge things. And yet Jesus is saying, when you do those little things, you're doing it for me. And we can change the world by doing that. So, therefore, go out and get engaged. I mean, engage. So... <laughs> Can I pray for you guys? God, light us on fire with a passion for ministering to you by ministering to people in need. God, make that a reality in our minds, a reality in our spirits, that when we minister to someone who is in need, when we fill a need, whether it be inside the church, outside the church, underneath the church, wherever, when we minister, God, we are doing it for you. When we serve someone, we're doing it for you. We are, as you said, we are doing it even for the least of these. Whoever it's for, we're doing it for you, to touch your heart, to clothe Jesus, to visit Jesus, to pray for Jesus, to share the gospel with Jesus. We're ministering to Jesus in disguise. God, brand that on our hearts. Brand that on our minds. And yes, God, it's going to be inconvenient. So Lord, I pray you'd give us the patience, the endurance to do it. But God, I pray that you'd help everyone seated in this room. No matter whether they're seated at the back, at the front, in the middle, on the left, on the right. Whatever seat they're sitting in, God that you would help them to know they are a minister. And I pray that like the early church, God, that we would transform the world. That we would transform the world by seeing you in those in need. God, I thank you so much. Colossians chapter 3, verse 12 through 17, it says, Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. And above all else, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony, and let the peace of Christ rule in your heart, to which indeed you are called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell richly, dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God, the Father, through Him. Amen. Amen.